friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. ready to go to God's Word. We're actually uh, going to the last few sermons of the book of Esther. And so today we will be taking a look at Esther chapter 9 verses 1 to 19. So I'd like to request each one to please rise from their seats as we come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this Wonderful morning, O oh God. Thank you for the great time of worship that we had. Thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of your presence. Indeed, you're worthy of all our praises. And Lord, we know we will never, ever run out of words to express our thanksgiving, to express our praise and our worship of you. There is just so much, Lord, that you give to your people. And today, once again, we have been recipients of your grace. And Lord, I pray that you might speak to your people this morning. I pray for myself, O oh God, that you might use me as a conduit of blessing. I pray, Father, that you will give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And I pray, Father, that you will open the, high, the eyes of the hearts of your people, O oh God. I pray, Father, that they might see you in a far greater light. And whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, God's Mighty Deliverance and Victory. Now, in the passage that you and I will be studying today, what you and I will see is the faithfulness of God. And His faithfulness is expressed in the deliverance of the people of Israel. The interesting part, of course, is that we know that Israel constantly failed the Lord. Of course, that's not only true in the case of Israel, that is also true in our case as well. But one thing we know about our God, it never stops God from being faithful to us. In fact, that is one of the distinct attributes of God, His faithfulness. His faithfulness never, ever fails, and He will be faithful no matter what. Now, in this chapter, we will see that after all of God's preparations and providential dealings, the day of confrontation now has to take place. The day had finally come for God's mighty deliverance and victory. Now, there are three parts to our study this morning, which I'd like to show to you on the screen. And th these are the three parts that we have. First of all, we're going to talk about the timing of God's deliverance as well as His victory. And then we're going to go into detail and talk about the way of God's deliverance and victory 
And as our final point, we're going to talk about the celebration of God's deliverance and victory. So let's go straight away right now to our first point, which is the timing of God's deliverance and victory. So let's read verse 1, first of all. It says, Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. You know, one of the intriguing points of this particular narrative is how God was able to turn things around on behalf of His own people. And what we find here is that the enemies now become the receiving. They now have the receiving end of destruction. And ultimately, Satan's plans will not prosper. God will always succeed. God's plan to preserve Israel and the Messiah was not going to be frustrated. Now, the day of deliverance came after one year of waiting. And sometimes we do get impatient, don't we? Sometimes we want God to deliver us straight away. At the soonest possible time, we go through a crisis. We want God to deliver us right at that very point. However, I'd like us to know that the timing of God is perfect. And before He delivers us, God obviously is trying to achieve certain purposes, not only in our case, but probably in the case of the believing community as well as that of the world. And so we just have to simply trust the timing of God. God's timing is always perfect. So there are two lessons that we derive even just here in the first verse. Number one, God has His perfect timing. And so we must learn to wait and trust in Him. Let me just go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 all the way to verse 11. Allow me to read this passage. It goes, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. And then verse 11 says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. In other translations, it says, He makes all things beautiful in 
His time. And here is where we need to learn to trust God. The Bible says that we are not to lean on our own understanding, but to put our whole weight of trust in the Lord. And of course, sometimes this can be a very difficult task on our part because we're very impatient people. As I mentioned to you, the very moment you and I encounter problems, we want God to deliver us straight away. But sometimes there are higher purposes that God is trying to achieve. And I think more than anything else, as believers in Christ, we are to be mindful that the primary goal of God in our lives is the formation of our character. In fact, what God wants is that we might be conformed to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ-likeness is the ultimate goal of God in our lives. And that being the case, we need to be patient with Him. God knows what He is doing. His understanding, His wisdom, His intelligence is infinite, and therefore, we have to trust Him at all times. Now, a second lesson we derive out of this passage is that in between the time of the problem and the deliverance, God is giving us ample time to prepare ourselves. Just to share to you a case in point, let me share about the example of the Israelites when they were delivered by God out of Egypt. Now, I'd like you to know that when God delivered them from Egypt, there was actually a shorter route going into the land of promise. And that was to go along the coastline going up north. That would have been the easier path for them. However, we find that God did not allow them to go through the coastal area all the way up north. Instead, what God allowed them to do is to go to the east, first of all, and then later on go up north, and then later on go west, crossing the River Jordan. Of course, the big question is, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God want the people of Israel to go through the shorter route? Well, first of all, that route would have been treacherous to them. Now, why do I say that? because that coastal area is filled with armies that were seasoned in war. There were chariots, there were fortresses, and the people of that area would have eaten the Israelites alive. You and I know that the people of Israel, when they were in Egypt, were working as what? They were working as shepherds, and they were working as slaves. So what could slaves and shepherds possibly do in warfare that involved a humongous army, an army that was strong and mighty and powerful? And there was an abundance of that in the coastal area. So what God did really, while He was bringing, it, bringing them towards the east and going north later on, was to allow them to go through a few skirmishes, a few battles, and what do you think God was doing? Well, as the book of Psalms says, God was training their, their hands for war. God was training their hands for war. 
And so all of that time was really a preparation. And we can say the same thing as far as the Jews were concerned in the Medo-Persian Empire. You see, if God did not give them ample time, they would not have been able to prepare themselves to defend themselves. And so once again, we see here the wisdom of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you are in a situation of crisis in your life, and probably you're becoming quite impatient. And you're thinking, Lord, why don't you just give me the shortcut to this? And God will probably tell you, son, my daughter, I don't want you to pass through the shortcut. I want you to go through the sure cut. And this is something that we need to trust God for. God knows exactly what he is doing. And so in the meantime, let's be patient with the Lord. Let's learn to wait upon the Lord. Now, in the second part of this narrative, we, we will be going into detail into the way of God's deliverance and victory. But first of all, let's read verse 2. It says, The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Now, what I would like to do in this particular verse and in the next few verses is to outline for you how God was able to deliver the nation of Israel. I think it's very important to go into certain details that we might appreciate the providential dealings of God. Well, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, God has appointed everything according to His own time. And that includes all the details of our lives, both big and small. And one of the things we find here is that God gave them the right to defend themselves. And of course, this was coursed through Mordecai, who had now been elevated by the Lord into a position of power as well as authority. Previous to this, before this decree, they were helpless. They were hopeless because the, the enemies, the nations that were against them could actually destroy them, annihilate them, and plunder them. But with this decree to be able to defend themselves, now they have the right to be able to protect themselves as well as their family. Now, the second thing we find here is God's empowering upon them. It says no one could stand before them. Now, how could, how could that possibly happen? Only God could possibly do that. Previous to this, they were helpless and hopeless, and now things have been turned around. The Bible says no one could stand before them. Why? Because if God is for you, you become the majority. Amen? Not the minority. If God is on your side, nobody could stand against you. Now, not only that, we are told in the last phrase, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. God put the fear in the hearts of the enemies of the Jews. And the fact that there was a dread in the hearts of these enemies, you could say that half of the battle or half of the war had already been won. They were already scared of the Jews. 
So what do we see here? This is a lesson in God's faithfulness. God fights our battles. Amen? God fights our battles. Could you say to your neighbor, God fights our battles? Now, it's very important to refresh our memories with that. Why? Because oftentimes we think we're alone. Oftentimes we think that we're fighting our own battles and that God has deserted us, God has abandoned us. That is so far from the truth. The book of Hebrews says that He never abandons His people, He never deserts His people. Definitely there are times when it seems when heaven is silent, it seems like God is not moving. But the truth of the matter is that God is actively working on behalf of His people. We just don't see it. Sometimes the invisible hand of God can only be traced in hindsight. When we look at the various circumstances that have passed through our lives, that's the only time you and I discover that God's fingerprints were on our lives, were upon our lives. And that is why, again, we need to trust Him. Now, in Israel's battle against Ammon and Moab, here's what we see, that God is the one who fights our battles. I'd like to share that experience in Israelite history as we take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 14, please. It says, Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. I mean, we're talking about the combined armies of Moab and Ammon. Definitely, that was a formidable force. But then again, here's what God says, For the battle is not yours, but God's. Amen? The battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Zis, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Amen? The Lord is with you. That is why no matter how formidable the forces of the enemy might be against us. We have nothing to fear. Why? Because God is on our side. And again, this is something very important for us to be reminded with. And I'd like to remind you as well that God is not only with us. He is not only Emmanuel, God with us, but God is already in us. How? By the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. As I was meditating on this particular thought this morning, I was deeply humbled by the fact that God could actually make our bodies 
His dwelling place. And I'm thinking about the fact that in our lives, there's so much unfaithfulness, not necessarily in our actions, but maybe in our thoughts, in our motives, in our intentions. There's so much unfaithfulness to God. And yet the interesting part, the humbling part of it, is that God continues to abide in us and He will abide in us forever. There will never ever be a time wherein the Holy Spirit will actually depart from us. And as I meditated on that thought this morning, I was deeply humbled by that. And I said, Lord, how could a holy, transcendent, glorious, mighty, powerful God, the creator of the universe, choose to live and dwell in our own human body when you know, Lord, that there are many times that we betrayed you, Many times we're in, we will deny you. And yet that will never, ever stop you from being faithful to us. That to me is really mind-blowing and humbling. And by the way, that to me as well is my confidence. That wherever I go, whatever things I face in life, God is not only with me, he is in me, amen, and He is for me, hallelujah. And so we rejoice in that, dear brothers and sisters. You know, one of the interesting things that I meditated on this morning, I was meditating on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And God, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, was talking about the, the context there has to do with loving our enemies. It is turning our other cheek. And then there was a passage there that, that jumped out of the page. And, you know, it was, it was a God moment for me. For the Bible says that God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked men. God is kind to ungrateful and wicked men. And that is why he could tell us, love your enemies. Why? Because he practices what he preaches. All over the world, what do we see? We see perversion. We see wicked men. We see ungrateful men. Men have been blessed by God on this earth. God has made the rain to fall both on the righteous and the unrighteous. Both on the believer and the unbeliever. The sun has shined both on the believer and unbeliever, both on the righteous and the wicked. There has been no distinction. Even people who are rebelling against God are recipients of the common grace of God. That is the love of God. God has not withdrawn His kindness and His mercy, His love and compassion, even to people who hate Him and who have spurned His love. And that to me is, is really mind-blowing. That is why in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, God could say, love your enemies, because God has been doing that for thousands of years. He has been loving his enemies. And you and I need to recount the fact 
that we ourselves were enemies of God. And yet, Christ died for us that we might be reconciled to the Father and that we would have peace with God. Amen? I just truly admire and appreciate the God that we serve. Amen? He is a kind, generous, gracious, loving God. And He is with us and for us. Now, let's continue on with the other ways by which God delivered the nation of Israel. Let's take a look at Esther chapter 9 and verse 3 and 4. It says, Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. The man Mordecai became greater and greater. So what do we find here? Here's another way by which God delivered them. You find the assistance of the authorities or the governors of the day as they feared Mordecai. Now, why did they fear Mordecai? Because now he had become powerful. He was a helpless person, remember? He was mourning, he was grieving, he was crying for his people. He was afraid for his own life. He was afraid for the life of Esther. He was afraid that the nation of Israel would be annihilated. And we know that they understood the promise of the Messiah. And he knew that if Satan succeeded, if Haman succeeded, all of the promises of God would no longer take place. But then, of course, we know that God can never, ever be frustrated. Amen? Satan might, might throw all of his might and force against God, against his people, and against the purposes of God, but he will never, ever succeed. For the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? Our God is greater. Our God is greater than all. Now, we find a few notes here. God made a nobody into a somebody. Now, God specializes in those things, doesn't he? Amen? Recall the story of David, of course. Who was David? David was the youngest son of Jesse. The family of Jesse was really an insignificant family, an irrelevant family. It was not really... A, a popular or influential family. And David happened to be the youngest. And what was his job? Well, his job was taking care of the sheep of the family. He was a shepherd. And all of a sudden, he was thrust into the scene. I mean, from, from obscurity, all of a sudden, he became famous. How? He became famous when he did battle against Goliath, a nine-foot-nine giant. How could this teenage boy, probably around 17 years old, win against a seasoned nine-foot-nine giant, the champion, the champion among the Philistines? And yet, once again, God was able to show forth this power through this teenage boy, and all of a sudden, he was thrust into popularity. He became very famous, and later on, he became the king of Israel. God specializes in those things. I recall the story of Joseph the dreamer as well. From prisoner, he becomes prime minister. Now think about this. 
How many times has this actually happened? Wherein you find an ex-convict becoming a prime minister. How many times has history told us that narrative or that story? I don't think there are many times. Probably that would be the only occasion wherein an ex-convict becomes a prime minister. And once again, what do we see here? We see the power and the might of God. There is nothing difficult with God. And that is why in this crisis moment in the nation of Israel, as they were looking for a deliverer like Moses, as they were looking for a deliverer like Aaron, God was equal to the scene. God was equal, more than equal to the crisis that the people of Israel were facing. God raises up a nobody and he becomes a somebody. And what we find here was a no-win situation on the part of the enemies of Israel. Why do we say that? Because now the authorities were on the side of Israel. Wherein previous to that, they were actually willing to pounce on a helpless nation. God had put fear in the hearts of the government officials. Initially, it was Mordecai who was fearful, but now the tables were turned around. This was something, by the way, that God has done all throughout the history of Israel. In fact, this was something that God promised as early as the book of Deuteronomy, as they were going to face many nations in the land of Canaan. Obviously, they were fearful. They were afraid. They were overwhelmed by the task. They did not know if, if they would be able to win those wars, most especially against these powerful Middle Eastern nations that had great fortresses and chariots and great weapons who were seasoned in war. And yet, this is what God promised in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. Could you please turn your Bibles there? God says, Deuteronomy 2, verse 25, This day, I will, begin to, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish of you. As I mentioned to you, half of the battle has already been won. If people are fearful of you, half of the battle has been won. This is true even in the arena of sports. I mean, if your opponent is afraid of you, you've won half the battle already. Because it's a mind thing as well. It's not just about muscles. It's not just about brute strength. It's also a mental thing. And God knew exactly how to play against the mind of these people by putting fear, by injecting fear in their hearts. And this is exactly what you and I see in this particular scenario. And then in, in Esther 9, 5, all the way to verse 10, we find the act of God's deliverance and victory in Susa. Let me read verse 5. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, 
Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisata. Now, who were these guys? Well, verse 10 tells us who they were. They were the ten sons of the son, um, ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So here was the victory that God gave to them, the execution of 500 enemies of the Jews in Susa, which was the citadel of the king. And together with them, the ten sons of Haman were killed as well. And what do we see here? We see God's poetic justice. The only thing in the mind of Haman was the destruction of the people of Israel. Now notice how God turns things around, and here we see poetic justice. Now, I know that there are certain people who are suffering as a result of injustice and some form of oppression. I mean, this is not the day and the time of slavery, obviously. But it's possible that you yourselves are experiencing some form of oppression. Probably some of you who are employed are feeling some form of oppression with, with your employers. That's possible. Or maybe there are some people who are so influential, so powerful, and they're trying to bully you. They're, they're intimidating you. They're pressuring you, and, and somehow you give in to that pressure. You give to them what they do not actually deserve, but you're forced to give it to them. And probably there are some people in your family who have been hurt, who have become victims. And, and some of you are wondering, will justice ever take place? And sometimes when we look around and there's so much injustice taking place, we wonder, will there be justice? And, and the thing I'd like to be able to say to you is that our God is a God of justice, and the justice of God is perfect. And here's the thing. If God will not judge them in this life, know this, He will definitely judge them in the next life. Amen? And that is why we have to trust in the goodness of God. We have to trust in the justice of God. Now, God might allow us to see with our own eyes justice being played out right before our very eyes. Praise God if that happens. But even if our eyes do not see that, even if our ears do not hear that, even if our hands do not touch it, remember this, our God is a God of justice. Amen? God's eyes are upon the world. Amen? His eyes are upon the righteousness and the evil that is taking place in this world. And one thing we know, those who are righteous, God will reward. Those who are evil, those who are perverse, they will be judged by God. They will be punished by God. That's what we know about our God. So let us not fret, because oftentimes we fret and we get angry, even against God. And we say, Lord, why aren't you doing anything at all? God is doing something. Sometimes we don't even know that His justice is already at work. And again, here's where we need to trust the Lord, our God. Now, an interesting point in what we read is that the, the narrator points out that the Jews did not take the plunder. 
which meant that their only interest was their own survival. If you recall, the decree that was published by Mordecai included a stipulation wherein they could actually take the plunder or the spoil. Yet, interestingly, we find that the Jews, compared to their enemies, were on a higher moral ground. Haman wanted all the wealth to be plundered amongst the Jews. But the Jews were saying, we don't want any of that. All we want to do is to live our lives as ordinary citizens of this Medo-Persian empire. We want to live in peace and in security. That's the only thing we want. And so again, we find that they were actually on higher moral ground. I like what the New Bible Commentary says about this. It goes, in accordance with the example of Abraham, they preferred not to enrich themselves through the fall of their enemy. Such unusual self-restraint would not go unnoticed and would commend the Jews in the estimation of the people. And rightly so. I think they were greatly respected. Now in verse 11, let's read on. It says, On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall even be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month, Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their, their hands on the plunder. Now we find here that Esther made a further petition to extend by a day the execution of their enemy. Now, why do you think Esther did that? Well, probably it was because after the 500 had been killed, there were still a number of very powerful enemies that remained. And their hatred could still actually be a threat to the nation of Israel. And that being the case, in wisdom, Esther asked the king if the king could possibly extend that decree to one more day so that they could defend themselves. And so what happens is another 300 were killed, a total of 800 therefore, plus Haman's sons rather, who were killed were now hanged on the gallows. Now, some of you might think, well, they're dead already. Why do you have to hang them on the gallows? Well, I believe it was making a statement. Making a statement never to attack the Jews. Anyone who does so will suffer the same fate as Haman as well as his sons. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. Many have questioned why the Jews have wanted or why the Jews wanted to impale the already dead bodies of Haman's ten sons. 
This was not an unusual practice in the ancient Near East. It was a visual warning that others better not commit the same crime as the punished ones. So it served as a deterrent uh, to the other nations that they may no longer harm the Jews. Once again, by the way, the narrator points out that the Jews did not take the plunder. Now remember, this was an extended day. They could have changed their minds. They could have said, what fools we were. We did not take the plunder. We could have been rich. We could have been wealthy overnight. Now, we, we have an extension. We have one more day. Maybe we can take the wealth of these people. Nevertheless, once again, they prove their consistency. They do not take any of the plunder. And once again, it only meant they just wanted to survive. Now, the seventh way by which God delivered them would be acts of deliverance and victory this time in the provinces. So far, what we have covered was the victory that God was able to accomplish in Susa, the citadel of the king. Now let's take a look at what happens in the provinces. Now, here's what we see in verses 16 and 17. It says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Now, can you imagine 75,000 of their enemies were killed. Now, I'd like to make something quite clear. The people of Israel were not instigating violence. They were not the agitators. They were not the ones who were aggressively pursuing their enemies. Remember, the decree was to simply be able to defend themselves. So what this simply means is this that these 75,000 people were the ones who were instigating the attack. They were the ones who were assaulting the Jews. They were the ones who were aggressively fighting against the Jews. That speaks, of course, of, of their hatred of the Jews. They wanted to get rid of the Jews. And yet, thankfully, once again, by God's empowering, by God's mighty deliverance, these 75,000 that attempted to kill the people of Israel, they instead suffered the same fate that they intended to happen to the nation of Israel. They met their death. So once again, here we see the deliverance of God. Now, as we talk about this, I'd like to bring back to your memory the fact that the main reason why all of these things were happening was because of compromise on the part of Israel. They were not supposed to be in the Middle Persian Empire. Where were they supposed to be? They were supposed to be in the land of Canaan. If they had only obeyed the perfect will of God, none of these things would have happened. They would not have been threatened with violence. There would have been safety and security in the land of Canaan because that was the perfect will of God. 
And yet here's what you and I see. We see the kindness of God. We see the faithfulness of God. We see the faithfulness of God to, to His covenant with Abraham as well as to David. God did not desert His people in spite of their unfaithfulness. And what lesson do we derive out of this? Isn't that our story as well? Isn't our story a story of failures? Don't tell me you have not failed the Lord because I have failed God. You too have failed the Lord. You too have stumbled. And although the world may, may not have witnessed any of those, of those stumblings and failings that we have had, you and I know exactly how we have betrayed and denied the Lord. And yet, brothers and sisters, let me tell you this, God has never abandoned His people. Amen? In fact, we have continually experienced His grace in our lives. We have continually experienced the fact that we have food on the table, that we have a roof on top of us, that we're still able to send our children to school, that God still has provided for our needs. Time and time again, this is what you and I see. The revelation of God's goodness and God's kindness in our lives. And why do you think God continues to do that? Because He loves us. You know, we sing this song, our sin is great, but His love is what? His love is greater. Our sin is great, but His love is greater. And the intention of God is this. That we, as we experience the grace of God in our lives, as we experience the goodness of God in our lives, that we would turn back to Him in repentance and say to Him, God, I'm sorry, I have failed you many times over. And yet, Lord, you have remained steadfast in your love towards me. You have never abandoned me, Lord. In fact, there have been seasons in my life when my life was stained with darkness, it was stained with sin. And yet during those moments, Lord, you had revealed yourself as a God of love, as a God of compassion. It was even during those times, Lord, that your manifest presence was, was so great and so powerful. I felt the embrace of your love. I felt your presence, your sweetness. Lord, how could you possibly do that? But that's the story of every believer in Christ. That was the story of Peter who denied the Lord three times. Yet interestingly, intriguingly, he is the first preacher who launches the gospel ministry in the book of Acts. Why did God choose Peter of all? Why not James? Why not John? Why not Matthew? Why not Andrew? Why not the other apostles? Why Peter? Because you know what? We, Peter, was a trophy of His grace. Amen? We are all trophies of the grace of God. Amen? That's what you and I are. And you know... The whole world looks at that. Even the angels and the demons observe that and witness that. They see the goodness of God in our lives. And they're probably scratching their heads. How could God be so good to such 
unfaithful, compromising, stumbling people. Yet that is who our God is. God never abandoned us even during our seasons of backsliding. He's always been there. He's always been faithful. That is the story of the book of Esther. So what do you do in such a case? Well, the last part talks about the celebration of God's deliverance and victory. So let's take a look at verses 18 and 19 at this time. It says, But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. So the celebration on the part of the provinces happened on the 14th day because they just had one day to execute the decree. On the part of those who were in Susa, they had two days. And so their celebration uh, took place on the 15th. In verse 19, therefore the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar, a holiday for, for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. And so here we find a great celebration taking place, great worship taking place. And I believe that that should be one of the reasons why we should be worshiping God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Because with all the goodness that, that God has shown in us, I believe here's what's going to happen. Many people have said, many people who have had near-death experiences tell us that their lives have been reviewed. It, 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 it's something that is fast-forwarded or replayed, you know, in that near-death experience. All of a sudden, they remember all the things they have done. And sometimes they remember the bad things that they have done. And I believe that one of the things that will be reviewed by God for us is the number of times when His invisible hand was working and favoring and granting goodness and love and compassion towards us. I'd like to be able to see that day. I'd like to be able to kneel down before my Master and my Savior. And just like the 24 elders that you find in the book of Revelation, I'd like to lay my, my crowns before the Lord and prostrate myself before Him and worship Him and thank Him for the rest of eternity. Eternity will reveal to us the many intricate details of how God has been so good and so loving to us. And that is why I challenge you, brothers and sisters, oftentimes our, our worship towards the Lord is is half-hearted. Oftentimes, our, our worship of God is so casual and so light-hearted. There are no religious affections. We're just simply mouthing words. and We're simply singing songs. But do you feel 
the import and the significance of those songs? Do you, do you really admire the redemption and the atonement that God has given to you? Do you admire the many miracles that God has performed in your life? Does that cause your heart to be warm towards God? Does that cause you to worship Him? Because He deserves the highest praise. And in this particular situation, we find a grand celebration. And why not? God has been so good to His people in spite of their unfaithfulness. When the decree of Haman to annihilate the Jews became published and proclaimed, fear struck the heart of the Jews. God, however, prepared, protected, and delivered His nation. In this, we see that God's faithfulness perseveres in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Let me ask you this question. If you were God, would you be faithful to yourself after you see all your failings and failures? Would you still remain faithful to yourself if you were God? I'd like to be honest, if I were God, I wouldn't be as faithful as God has been with me. That's why every single day is a day of worship to me. Every single day is a day of prayer to me. No matter how tired, no matter how weary, no matter how sleepy I am, I just have to bring up my body from my bed and just thank God and praise God because He is a mighty and gracious God and He does things for the glory of His name and the fulfillment of His purposes. And I pray that we will be a worshiping bunch of people, a God-glorifying, a God-honoring people because that is what He deserves, and only He alone deserves it. Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Shall we rise from our seats? Come on, let's give the Lord our praise. Hallelujah. Let's give God a standing ovation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We bless you. We worship you, O God. Let's declare our praises to Him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you, O Father. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Every single day is a manifestation of your goodness. All those intricate details that you work in our lives, at times, we do not even notice. Sometimes we, we munch on food and we're not even so thankful that we are able to taste all those, those flavors. Our eyes so, see so many colors and so many shapes, so many things of, of beauty and wonder, and yet our eyes do not gaze into the heavens and 
acknowledge that all of these things are from you. Yet, Lord, you are so tender. The book of Isaiah says, Lord, that, that a mother can never forget her nursing babe. And you will never ever forget us, Lord, for you have inscribed us in the palms of your hands. And every time you look at the palms of your hands, you see us. And in your tenderness, in your gentleness, you just love us and love us and love us and love us and love us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Thank you for your kindness and mercies. And Lord, may we not be thrifty with our worship. May we not be stingy in glorifying your holy name. But may we be extravagant in our praise and in our worship, declaring you for who you really are. May we not be stopped and hindered. May our hearts be continually warm towards you, O God. May our gaze be heavenward at all times. Help us, O God, to be like Peter, who stood up from where he had fallen and became a mighty force, a trophy of your grace. That's what we want to happen, a trophy of your grace. And Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And would you be so kind, Lord, to bless us, not because we're greedy, but because we want to be partners with you in your work. And Lord, whatever has been achieved today, we give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.